Howdy. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, the show where we talk science, tech, oil, business, politics, and more. Hi, I'm Matt. And I'm Graham. Together, we're the hosts of this circus. To follow the conversation, make suggestions, or rant and rave, please visit the forum Software Underground at swung.rocks. All right, I've pulled the trigger. We're live. Hey. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Undersampled Radio, episode 23. We've almost reached a quarter century or whatever. Um, we are going to have an awesome show for you today because we've been off for weeks and weeks, it seems like. Um, we've been busy, hard at work, hard at work changing our setup here. Once again, I have changed my recording situation, hardware and software-wise. So 95% chance um, my computer will blow up during this. And uh, if that happens, Matt, just send the rescue teams in, OK? Um, there's, some, there's some awesome news we have here in the show notes today. Uh, there's a machine learning conference. Now, um, I'm not actually, so we're on episode 23. Matt, can you recall an episode when we didn't mention machine learning? Has there been one? No. No, OK. Um, it's cool stuff. I want to go to this conference. You going? I, well, I, actually, I was, I was going to ask um, David, who uh, we'll introduce properly later. Um, uh, David Holmes from EMC is uh, waiting quietly uh, <laughs> in the wings. And I thought maybe he might have even been to this conference last year, because apparently this is the second one. Uh, I've, I've, I didn't go to the conference last year. Um, and. Uh, I just found out about it two minutes ago when I uh, opened up the uh, the show notes. Uh, they appear to have the uh, the usual bunch of suspects uh, mm -hmm. turning up to 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 talk at it. So I think the interesting thing about these events is it, it's going to follow the same old format, right? Mm -hmm. There are going to be a bunch of smart people who are going to stand up and they're going to do a keynote presentation and they're going to give you your perspective on the world. They're probably going to explain how companies like Airbnb, Uber, and Netflix are completely uh, digitalization and transforming the world. And they're going to try and draw some tenuous uh, analogy between what we do in the energy industry uh, and what a company that manages a lot of cars and the sat-nav system does. Um, and, um, and, and, and actually, my experience of these events is that you know, some of the keynotes have a few interesting points. They can usually be distilled into about 60 seconds. But where it really all happens is when the, the, the formal presentations stop and people actually start talking to each other. Uh, or where you get um, small breakout rooms where people sit down and talk about the things they've done. Because I'm with you. I think this is, a, this is an area that is going to be very transformative over the next few years. We're doing a bunch of research projects, which I'll perhaps touch on later on, that, that look at ways you can use machine learning in, in our industry the, that certainly I didn't expect. So hmm. uh, am I super excited about going to this event? Oh, I'm not sure, but, uh, but, but it's, it, it's bound to be interesting. Yeah, I, I feel like these sort of events, because it seems to be organized by a sort of commercial conference organizing company, right? So presumably they just sort of, I imagine them just having this sort of giant uh, board of sort of opportunities, like buzzwords that they're probably just looking at, like Google search for <laughs> frequency. They, or they probably have some machine learning system that comes up with <laughs> yeah, the conference exactly. title. Exactly. <laughs> like, the, and you know, versus dollars, basically, and yeah. we can get people to come to this conference. Uh, you know, so not, not 
you know, so, so it's sort of, so I almost just don't like the premise of, <laughs> of organizing the conference. It's like, let's make money, but fair enough. Uh, like you say, I think some good conversations and, uh, you know, meetups and things have come out of it. And as, you know, you look at the list of people who were there last year, because I don't think they've got any talks lined up yet for 2017. 2016, it's sort of you know people from Baker Hughes and Schlumberger and CGG and all of and Chevron and operators as well. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, on the one hand, it's like they're clearly just they invite these people so that they can sell more tickets to their conference and make it a big success. Um, so yeah, I don't know. I, I, I guess it's I almost feel like their whole sort of. Uh, their whole, the way that they operate is essentially trying to make something that you can't afford not to be at. <laughs> it's almost just like, you that, that, know, everyone else right. is and coming. And, to the and of course, they, they, they try and get their money in uh, in a couple of different directions. One is from people attending, but the other is from getting companies to sponsor the events. And, and these conversations always start off brilliantly. You get an email or a phone call from somebody saying, well, uh, I don't know if you're familiar with the uh, senior vice president for exploration from insert name of important oil company here, but he's personally asked me to give you a call and see if you'd be prepared to come along and give a keynote. Okay. Like, oh, well, that, sound, that sounds interesting. And uh, well, let me then send you the prospectus and a range of different uh, uh, commercial sponsorship opportunities that are available to you, and you're like, okay, this is this is the pattern. I I, I get these calls pretty much every week, oh and God. it's it's very flattering um, that some senior executive in oil company who I've never heard of apparently wants me personally there. But it always seems to come attached with a, you know, uh, uh, a twenty-five to fifty thousand dollar bill attached to it. Right, right, yeah. Okay, so anyway, I don't know. I guess I was going to sort of keep an eye on it, and you know. If if it fits in with some other things, then maybe maybe show up. Uh, it's like like you say the the next the next few years are just going to be fascinating. So it's almost like I want to take every opportunity to see that story unfolding, even if some of them are a bit icky, <laughs> maybe. But anyway, that's that's that. The link to the conference is in the show notes if anyone's interested in finding out more about it. So we've um, done the undersampled radio thing. Uh, we're we're uh, five minutes deep, and we've already talked about machine learning and batch to conference. So uh, you guys can just switch it off now if you want. Sorry, uh, <laughs> summary. Uh, how about how about uh, another conference of sorts? Not really. That's going on today. If you're in the New Orleans area, if you're watching this, go over to the Southeastern Geophysical Society meeting in downtown NOLA. Um, it's I'm not sure what the talk is going to be about because it was a little vague in the details but you get to eat a nice lunch and talk to people that uh, are interested in subsalt imaging so uh, that happens at 11:30 at holiday inn or something like that i don't know it's on the website the links in the show notes um hey look at this another open sourced ai platform what's that about yeah i i i really don't know much about it other than that it's called paddle paddle which i just thought was Kind of awesome. I don't, I don't know if you're paddling upstream or downstream in that scenario. Um, so it's been open sourced by Baidu, which is, you know, huge Chinese search engine, I guess. Um, and I, I thought that was just kind of interesting, given some of the patterns that Chinese companies have with respect to innovation, <laughs> not always necessarily coming with, from within, so to speak. Um, but there, the the reason why I was sort of my ears pricked up a little bit when I heard about it was because their whole philosophy with the platform was to kind of lower the bar. 
to um, the barrier to entry, so to speak, to get it to get into uh, AI. So they're they're trying to be as user friendly as possible, and that's really all I know. So it, it, I read this in the Verge. You can go check it out. Links in the show notes. It was also the first time in that article that I'd heard about Amazon's platform DSSTNE, which I'm guessing is pronounced Destiny, maybe, uh, which apparently was open sourced in May. Uh, so you know, just sort of add it to the list of everyone open sourcing their machine learning platforms, which is just which, an interesting trend in itself. Which one do we start playing with? Which one do we do we? I'm sure you already know all TensorFlow already. Well, yeah, that seems to be the one that people are really, really jumping on, um, and I haven't heard of any other kind of applications of even. I'm sure a lot of .NET people are playing with Microsoft's. I can't remember the, the acronym, but it's MNST or something. Can't remember. Um, yeah, and of course, uh, IBM's stuff is fairly accessible through their Bluemix platform. Um, but yeah, is that, is I mean, Watson? yeah. Did you hear that Wipro brought out a competitor to Watson and decided to call it Holmes? <laughs> hey, the there you go. <laughs> nice. Didn't make it up. I think yeah, that I think that showed a lack of understanding of why IBM chose the name uh, Watson for their machine learning platform. But yeah, yeah, that's right. That's, I, I can't think of anything unusually witty to say about that, but <laughs> like you say, you couldn't make it up. Um, I don't know. Do like you you move around a lot in this in this world, David? Do you, are you seeing people picking up these open source packages and applying them to their own problems? Yeah, and I think the. One of the challenges is is that the, the, this stuff's all going to shake itself down in a while. Um, I, I think, um, and Graham, you're right. TensorFlow is, uh, is is certainly one that we're 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 doing a lot of work on. I like TensorFlow because I got my eight year old to uh, build something out in Jupyter Notebook and start <laughs> doing character recognition. So I thought the accessibility of it was absolutely brilliant. Um, and um, and but but there are lots and lots of these different things. Um, and there's a huge amount of overlap, and somehow uh, we're going to have to figure out a way of distilling these things down um, into, a, into a much smaller set of tools, or, or they're going to have to differentiate themselves. Because at the moment, there's a sense of everybody you go and talk to is picking some particular platform, some particular uh, component. Um, and you know, maybe one day we can, uh, uh, we can chat about you, you see parallels with this in the whole um, platform-as-a-service universe where the world is starting to break down into people who are going for um, uh, these, um, the, the, these platforms where you don't have a lot of choice around what all the different components are, it's all built and assembled for you, mm -hmm. versus people who are uh, building their own unique platforms with their own unique sets of components. Uh, and, and I think the challenge is people have got to figure out where exactly they're getting value from these things and, uh, and how they're... Um, and on what they're what they're really in business to do, uh, because yeah, I, right. I don't see all of these things as being ultimately sustainable. Yes, I agree. What are the biggest uh, users, uh, commercial users of, for example, TensorFlow, uh, building out of these platforms? And is there some way to uh, distill the key use points of each platform into a single platform? Yeah, I, I mean, my, I, I guess my take on how it 
I, I would expect it to unfold. Well, I don't know. I was going to say that I, I, I feel like people will focus more on models. So to, essentially, AIs that already do things, I think, is where the sort of lowest hanging commercial opportunities probably are, rather than in sort of providing access to training and building new models of your own. Does that make mm. sense? So yeah. the sort of packaged um, AI that does a specific thing and has been trained on X data. And then I feel like the, the natural place to go from that is how do I continue to train or tweak that model with my, for my own sort of use case? Mm -hmm. and, um, my reading between the lines, and I, this might be... the I might have fallen for the marketing hype here, but I sort of wonder a little bit if that's where Apple and Google are going with these kind of almost ridiculously high-end phones that they're now producing. Because, because they need more compute in the hand of the user to, to de-generify these AIs so that your assistant becomes your assistant and your, yep. you know... Um, your face recognition things can recognize your face, that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. So, I, you know, I think that's going to be really interesting. I think the set of people who are actually building new models and even training new models is going to remain fairly small. Mm. Why don't you introduce our guests since we're already there? Yeah, right. Okay. <laughs> Excellent. Um, yeah, so David Holmes, uh, who is the, I think the last I read your title was CTO of Energy. Yep. At uh, EMC now, Dell EMC, I think is the official name of the merged. Yeah, that's right. The newly merged entity. So the the sixty billion dollar largest tech merger in history, I think. Apparently um, so. <laughs> went down like a month ago. Something yeah. Like that. That's right. And uh, and you're based in the UK, I believe, in the southeast of England. Yeah, my family live in the UK, and occasionally I get to visit them. I have a I have a global role. So this morning I'm in Houston. Uh, this afternoon I'll be in Austin, and on Saturday I'll be in Dallas. So, okay. yeah, wow. Okay, you will be for SEG, I guess, next week. Uh, yeah, yeah. Right. Can't wait. <laughs> so, um, so yeah. What so? What does a CTO get up to? Uh, that's Chief Technology Officer for the Energy Vertical. That's that's right. And and before I say any more, I, I have to remember that uh, uh, I need to disclose that anything that I say on this podcast uh, is my own opinions and doesn't necessarily represent the, uh, the opinions of Delhi MC Corporation. Um, now the good thing is is that the the, that's the company a feature, not a bug, by the way. Sorry, that's a feature, not a bug. <laughs> it's your opinions we want. Well, uh, well, honestly, I mean, the, the good thing about it is, is the company is pretty relaxed about people uh, turning up on podcasts. I was talking to somebody in another company uh, who's trying to do a podcast, and they were going through pages and pages of legal madness. Uh, and the and, and the rough approach within within our company is, you have to acknowledge who you work for, so people don't think that you're, you know, promoting your company inappropriately. And yeah, you have to say, look. This is my opinion. Take it as it is, and and then roughly we're uh, we're off the hook. Um, so back to your question, uh, what does the CTO do? I, I probably I, I think I have one of the uh, uh, the coolest jobs in the industry, but it, it seems like the job that I'd, I'd always been um, searching for. And essentially, there's there's three parts to my job. Um, 
One is um, I get to look at the entire toolbox of stuff that we have throughout the corporation and figure out which components of it assembled in which way uh, make sense for solving problems for energy companies. Uh, and that's a pretty fun thing to do. And you can probably imagine my toy box just got a whole lot bigger with the, with the merger. Uh, and I'm, the reason I'm off to Austin this afternoon is I'm going to see a whole bunch of new exciting toys um, that we can start uh, that we can start using. Um, second thing I do is uh, we have uh, a dedicated energy research and development center down in Rio de Janeiro. Um, we do a lot of companies working both with um, uh, service companies, technology companies, but also directly with oil companies, where where we're looking to. Um, you know, problems that we think the industry is going to be facing over the next few years, and we do applied research projects on, on how to solve those problems. So kind of things like global collaboration, uh, machine learning, optimizing, technical computing, and all, all sorts of things like that. And then the third part of my job is uh, is actually meeting up with, uh, with oil companies and sitting down and listening to their problems and their troubles and their woes, and then uh, proposing ways of fixing them. So mm. it's, a, it's, it's a pretty cool job, it suits me. Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. You certainly seem to have fun, like just from your uh, Twitter. Um, you know, occasionally I see you sort of. I think you tweeted the other day that you were actually programming, and that uh, you know, I think that's that's pretty cool if a CTO gets to sit down and it, you know, on, code occasionally. On, honestly, it was one of my big fears about taking this job is that I, I essentially turn into a PowerPoint junkie, and my role <laughs> in the world is to go along and do my eight slides, and then and then wander <laughs> off. And, and and honestly, I have been brought into meetings where I'm, I'm absolutely meeting the room. I'm brought in, look, you're a terribly important client. I will prove this to you because we brought in our energy CTO and he's going to sit and smile and not say anything. Uh, and, and then you're going to feel very important. But equally, I actually, uh, I've been on a couple of, uh, uh, we have a couple of sets of events around the world. So I've ended up sat in rooms in basements with my laptop and, uh, and hacking in a way, in a way that I haven't been able to for, for, for many years. So yeah, that's yeah. quite fun and awesome. unexpected. <laughs> and so, does your uh, portfolio include um, any other energy industries, like you know, nuclear, solar? I imagine these people have also got lots of computing needs. Yeah, so that it's a it's a, it's a good question. So, um, uh, up until about a year ago, we were the oil and gas vertical, um, and then somebody decided actually it would make a lot of sense for us to uh, to take in the broader energy vertical. So. Um, it includes utilities. It includes um, mm. uh, solar power. Um, you know, any any kind of uh, uh, renewable energy sources and anything pretty much related to uh, to to energy. What we're really looking to do, though, is it's not about identifying a bunch of companies and figuring out how to go and sell them hard disks and, and servers. It's really looking at across the entire market and figuring out how we can construct these things together. I mean, we have we have something like 30,000 salespeople within the entire Dell Technologies organization. Um, and they're really, really good at sell, selling their stuff and explaining why they have better servers or better storage or better this or better that. And what we're much more about is going and talking to business unit, so I'm a lot less involved with IT departments and energy companies than I am with the kind of the business owners, asset owners. Um, so I get to go and talk to those people about how we can do cool stuff and build stuff and uh, uh, and help them solve the problems they want solved. Are there any cool uh, projects upcoming where you get to utilize these new cool tools you've got with Dell? I mean, anything that sticks out in your mind that uh, you have on the horizon that's going to be an interesting solution? Yes. 
Okay. Thank well, you. I'm looking forward to coming back and talking to it about it on a future date. Good. No, there, there, there's so there, there's what you'll see happening really quickly is the so uh, EMC had uh, an absolute leading position in in the converged infrastructure market. Uh, and that's split into into two parts, really. Converged platforms, uh, which are really well suited to running conventional client-server applications. And they were essentially a, a construction of um, Cisco servers, Cisco networking, EMC storage, and VMware virtualization. And it's fantastically popular. People love it. It's, it's essentially buying a car instead of buying all the components for a car, to, mm -hmm. to use the, the, the marketing speak. But then on the other side, you have a new universe of, of what people are calling hyper-converged infrastructure, uh, where what people are doing is they're saying, actually, I don't want to buy these huge, expensive enterprise systems with high levels of availability. I'm going to let the software be responsible for providing all the availability. And I'm going to use software-defined technologies, software-defined storage, software-defined networking, software-defined virtualization. I'm going to use that. Uh, to run my infrastructure, I'm going to run this all on uh, on commodity hardware. Uh, and if you have the right application tool sets, then 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 this can this can work fantastically well. And it's definitely a direction that the uh, that the market's moving in. And what I see that's really interesting about that is is traditionally we've used companies like Quanta and Foxconn for sort of building those commodity servers for us. Um, but moving forwards, obviously we're going to uh, to use the uh, famous expression leverage the Dell supply chain. Uh, and we'll be building this stuff on uh, on our platforms. I'm sorry, using using Dell, Dell technology servers. And what's really interesting about it is that what I see is over the next couple of years, I think we're going to see a massive centralization of computation. And we're also going to see a move towards what I call composable systems. And what I mean by that is if you think about typical oil companies, they might have uh, seismic processing clusters, they might have uh, reservoir simulation clusters, and they might have interpretation systems. When you distill these things all down, they're basically CPUs, memory, and storage. Uh, and it's just different configurations of the same stuff. And generally speaking, in most companies, it's used fantastically and efficiently. We did a survey with a big company in Houston, uh, and their kind of $20,000, $25,000 workstations are running about 7% utilization. And when they added up all of the Xeon processors and the memory and everything else, they went, hang on, this is a supercomputer that's just sitting idle. So what I see is over the next couple of years, we'll see a massive centralization of everything. And we'll see companies start dynamically allocating resources to different workloads. Curiously, I suspect using machine learning technology to automate the execution and allocation of resources. Um, and the thing yeah. that I keep my eye on as a kind of technology to watch is if you think about the situation today where people have you know, Xeon processors, Xeon FICO processors, NVIDIA GPUs for doing computation and visualization. Uh, you have a big move back towards FPGAs, you know, real back to the future stuff. Like 20 years ago, we used them a lot. They're really coming back in. I don't know if you saw Intel launched a, uh, a new CPU on their 14 nanometer process, which integrates both uh, FPGAs and also ARM processing technologies mm. together. And I think this stuff's going to get really, really interesting over the next couple of years. So that's that, that's something I'd keep my eye on. Yeah, it's a fascinating sort of redefinition almost of what what software and hardware can do. You know, the, yeah. like the, this, this defining what you normally would think of as hardware resources through software. And on the other side, 
getting hardware through FPGAs, which are, I can't remember what that even stands for, but it's sort of a field programmable gateway. It's a way of basically taking your software and implementing it in hardware, but in a right. in, in a way that doesn't involve you building an eight billion dollar fab plant. Right. Yeah. Sort of flexible silicon is how I sort of think yeah. about it, and and people starting to sort of implement neural networks in hardware essentially, and sort of almost like building a building a brain, but but it's it's reprogrammable, so it becomes this sort of software defined hardware. <laughs> it's yeah. Potentially just fascinating. And and it is. It's it's slightly mad because all of a sudden uh, you're saying, well, hang on a minute. The thing I used to do in hardware, I'm now doing in software, and the thing I used to do in software, <laughs> I can now do in hardware. And yeah, uh, and 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 for me, one of the measures of the fact that this stuff's going to kick off is that um, uh, if you look at uh, Amazon and Microsoft with Azure and Google with GCP, they're all starting to offer up machines that have got these capabilities built into them. And why hasn't all... Why hasn't it kicked off already? I mean, FPGAs have been around for a long time. I think the um, uh, they're really hard. Traditionally, they've been really really hard to program. Um, is the is the simple answer to that, and, and and it's just there are a whole bunch of toolkits. It's becoming uh, easier to do, and the and the value of them is becoming uh, is becoming much more clear as well. So you know they they in a way they never went away, but I think it's going to become a mainstream technology, and people are going to realise that the, the the price performance is something else. Yeah, it's it's so funny too. Think you know I remember uh, Landmark in like. 2003, I think, we're all uh, starting to use these sun blades, I think they were called, and they were like these sort of central compute, and you just had a very thin client, and they had these quite neat little smart cards you put in the side of the, the, the display, and it would just bring up your session, and you could move to another sort of endpoint and use it there. And... I thought that was really awesome. <laughs> it just went nowhere. I don't know. Just uh, disappeared, maybe along with sort of uh, sun. I can't remember. And um, so it's funny to hear that potentially coming back. I remember we we tried to get a project off the ground at Conoco using Boink to exploit all those idle workstations in a sort of grid computing way, yeah. like overnight and that kind of thing. No, that went absolutely nowhere. But it's such an awesome idea, right? Uh, I, I also felt like in Canada, it might it might take care of some of the sort of heating bill and that kind of thing too. Just having all these workstations burning away at basically ninety nine percent twenty four hours a day. Yeah, that's right. And but 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 again, I mean, you you kind of raise a good point because my very first job in uh, in the oil and gas industry was figuring out how to run um, Paradigm Geolog on um, Citrix MetaFrame. Okay. Which is a really grim and, and clunky task, but we got it. We got it up and running, and it was all part of a, the company I was working for at the time was trying to build themselves as an ASP business, which one of those long forgotten acronyms. But but the idea was is that you didn't need a workstation; you could go anywhere you like, connect through a web browser, um, run this application, uh, and 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 you'd get a, a good experience. Um, and, and, and the truth is that, that that was well ahead of its time because you couldn't solve 3D and bandwidth was a problem, mm -hmm. visualization was a problem. But in the last 18 months, the, the, the industry has completely transformed. The work that NVIDIA has done on solving some of the problems of gaming issues uh, and delivering those have, uh, have really 
uh, all of that technology is filtered straight into uh, into into our vertical, uh, and I'm seeing this is going to be a huge area of adoption over the next couple of years. People so are going can, to sorry, go on. When can I stop buying workstations already? Sorry, say again. <laughs> when can I stop buying workstations already? Right now. <laughs> okay. Right now, you can absolutely stop buying workstations right now. Um, this is, I mean, this is what I tell pretty much any, everyone I meet. Is uh, there are a few edge cases. Uh, where if you want to be on a plane without an internet connection and you have to be running Trell uh, or, or, or you know, pick your geoscience application of choice, but whatever it is, um, there's some magic um, that uh, the VDI or thin client computing can't solve. Hmm. But curiously, the, uh, the neat solution to this now, which I, I saw demonstrated recently, is you can essentially grab your virtual machine image from the network, drag it down to your laptop and walk away with your own personal data center on your laptop. Now, for, for, those, for those edge cases, you, you're still going to need a, uh, a workstation class laptop, you know, if you're going to work with big data sets and, uh, and everything else. But uh, the days of big, tall tower workstations under, de under desks, um, I, think, um, I, think, I think we'll see those disappear over the next few years. Hmm. Interesting. Excellent. Are you seeing any... Um you know, one of, the, one of the other sort of, well, relatively recent, I think it was maybe a year ago now, though, uh, open source releases was Facebook open sourcing its hardware, um, the sort of GP, GPU blades or whatever you call them, uh, in the Open Compute Project, I think it was called. Yeah. Are, you, are you seeing any interesting hardware open source stuff happening? Um. No, is the is the short answer to that. I think, um, you know, I, I think the, the, the Open Compute project, I, I, I followed it, it was quite interesting. But essentially, if you look at um, who, who's making computers in the world, in, in, in reality, it, it falls down to a, there, there's, there's a bunch of um, uh, ODMs who will white box you uh, a machine to your design and choice. Uh, and then you have the, the major companies like Dell, Lenovo, and HPE um, who are producing at massive scale. And the real question is, is that when you think about open, te you know, open source or open technology hardware, you, you think, well, how, how much am I saving myself? Because I still need to buy the mm -hmm. core components. And in, and in reality, the, the people who are making hardware are making it at such fantastic scale, they're essentially able to amortize all of their engineering design costs over a vast number of systems. Mm. So the, the, the marginal cost saving of buying proprietary uh, versus open systems is, um, uh, is, is not enormous. So it doesn't become compelling because what a lot of people, people who are investing in kind of you know, on-premise hardware solutions, you know, they, they, they want something really easy. You know, the, the, you know, they know it's, they know it's going to come with a bunch of industry standard components, but what they want on top of that is management, orchestration, service, reliability, uh, and those things. Um, and then probably all wrapped up in some fantastic leasing deal as well. Um, so they become the things uh, by, by which people dif differentiate their offerings. Um, but the, the marginal cost isn't uh, isn't isn't enormous of, of going down the the, the vendor versus proprietary route. Right. So it's yeah, it's almost like the open source model works best. It almost only really makes sense for things which are very easily replicated. Essentially, you replicate them for free, um, like software, like content, books, photos, um, 
and it's, it's less compelling for something that actually has this sort of physical manifestation yeah, so, that you've you got know, to pay for. Exactly. So, so even you know, even if you had a, an, an open source CPU design, you still have to find some way of fabricating it, which yeah. is is going to have some significant significant material cost. So, I, I think I think you're right. I think it's really interesting. I think for the for the people who run at hyperscale, people who are putting hundreds of thousands or millions of servers, you know, having your own proprietary hardware design is a is a massive um, uh, differentiating factor. Mm. Yeah, that was the thrust of I think the Open Compute project was sort of here's how we manage having a bazillion computers running and uh, not too many people needed to kind of take care yeah. of them and swap things in and, and out. And, and curiously, even when you look at, at, at those use cases, um, you, you see companies like eBay, um, where you know they're building these huge, massive scale uh, processing systems, they'll still turn to the the, the larger vendors. So Dell built a, a data center model for eBay, and what you realize is that the, the reason that people are looking at custom hardware is because they want to do things like take all the fans out. They want to have integrated design of their HVAC systems and uh, the cooling on the servers. So that that's where they want the sort of the proprietary design. It's not that they're bothered as to whether or not there's a badge on the front. They just want to make sure they're getting the optimal um, compute costs of the infrastructure layer. Yeah, yeah. Where do we put our money? I want to buy. I want to buy some stock. Who do I buy? Well, uh, sadly, not 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 Dell, because um, because uh, because Dell's now a uh, a private company. Yeah. But um, uh, you pay your money, you make your choice. Uh, I, I I I I don't play the game of being a uh, a stock analyst. Um, I was interested to note that uh, uh, you know Nutanix successfully uh, executed uh, their, their IPO the other day, um, and they did very well out of it. Um, so Who's congratulations that? to them. Nutanix. Um, up until about a month ago, um, they were one of our competitors in the hyperconverged space, uh, and, and now it turns out that we're, uh, we're we're one of the largest sellers of, uh, of Nutanix systems. So, uh, so we're now a partner with them through uh, through the merger with Dell. So. I see. Um, and uh, you guys seem to partner somewhat with Landmark too on some things. I, I keep seeing. I saw your name pop up the other day in association where it was on a white paper, Halliburton Earth, some sort of packaged <laughs> system for subsurface. Can I help you out, or should I let you keep grasping at the? Uh, <laughs> Okay, so, yeah, so 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 one of the one of the things that we do we we do is we work with all of the major ISVs um, because one of the things that we've seen over the years is that getting infrastructure for petrotechnical applications right is really really hard, hmm. um, and we wanted to figure out a way of making it much easier uh, for companies to deploy and manage technology because if you, if you look at what a lot of the large vendors are doing, um, they're they're actually innovating pretty fast at the moment. They're, they're on a six-month release cycle. They're introducing new science, uh, new interesting algorithms, workflows, new capabilities. And yet, when you go and talk to energy companies, for them, the kind of like the, 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 the upgrade process is something that they dread. Mm -hmm. And so you see a lot of companies who will upgrade every two or three years. They don't have the agility to manage the upgrade cycle. And that's because, uh, you know, frankly, we, we've made it pretty hard because... 
you know, when you look at doing uh, uh, updates, you're looking at potentially, you know, Oracle updates, all kinds of infrastructure components you have to update. Uh, that's before you get on to the hardware and software requirements and everything else. So, um, so upgrading petrotechnical applications becomes hard. That's frustrating for the vendors because they're working really hard to give their customers cool stuff. Mm -hmm. um, and it's frustrating for, uh, uh, for geoscientists because they want the cool stuff and the IT department are telling them they can't have it for a couple of years. And potentially there's a good competitive advantage from being able to adopt the newest technology as quickly as, uh, as possible. Mm -hmm. So the work that we do with the, the, the vendors is around building um, standardized systems with automated um, update and deployment technology to make it as easy and fast as possible to make sure people have engineered systems where there's a predictable level of performance uh, and where you lose some of the conventional challenges around troubleshooting issues with applications. We make it really easy for people to uh, update and consume their application stack. So yeah, so the, uh, so Landmark Earth is an example of a product we jointly engineered with, with Landmark. It builds on top of our converged platforms. It uses standard installations for all, the, uh, for all the Landmark components. What it means is when they have a new release, there's an automated update process so people can really easily um, deploy a, a dev test environment for the new applications, test them out. They can roll over. If it all works fine, that's fast. They've got that's fine. Uh, they can easily roll back. Um, so it, it, it just massively reduces the, the cost and complexity of managing the petrotechnical environment. Uh, and you'll see other, other vendors are, are, are moving in the, uh, in, in the same sort of direction. Stambergé have their Blue Cube initiative, which has similar ambitions. Right. Yeah, it's like uh, click here to upgrade to Android, Android 7.0 on my phone there. <laughs> that simple, huh? Um, we, uh, Matt's got a question he wants to ask you before we run out of time. I see it here. Last question on the list. I, I can see it in his in his eyes here. He's, yeah. he's itching. He's itching to ask you. You, this. you picked up on my subtle segue. <laughs> I did. <laughs> um, yeah. So uh, I, I think maybe a couple of months ago. Um, so I should mention actually because we haven't. We could probably talk to David for a couple more hours. We're not going to. Don't worry. You'll you'll still make it to Austin. Because um, I should mention that. I mean, we were both at Landmark. We may even have been there at the same time, I think, although I, I don't think we met um, at the time. But uh, David has stepped up and sponsored, uh, I think, maybe three hackathons now that we've done, at least two anyway. Yeah. Um, and, and, and more than sponsored them, like being a huge kind of champion and supporter and just um, source of advice and come along to them even... Uh, laptop open, uh, hacking away, chatting to the teams, being a mentor, and uh, that's been amazing. To you know, I mean, I, <laughs> if if there's a list anywhere of all the CTOs of big technology companies that will come along to random hackathons organised by, uh, by random geophysicists in Nova Scotia, then I, th I think you're probably the only person on it. So I, I just wanted to give you kudos and say thank you in sort of public uh, for that amazingness. Um, and David also is in on the kind of software underground stuff and um, takes part in the, the Slack chat group, uh, which is also really cool. And anyway, something he dropped on there a couple of months ago was about Landmark's Open Earth Community, um, uh, what should I call it, initiative. Um, 
And but that was kind of all, all there really was to it. And he had a little bit more info, like, hey, actually, there's a bunch of companies partnering around this, and EMC is one of them. Uh, and we kind of left it there, kind of looking forward to today, really, and having this chance to ask you some more questions about it. So, how about it? Sure. So let me uh, <laughs> let me give you the mile the, the mile high view then. Mm-hmm. Um, so um, uh, the the general premise is that um, there are lots and lots of different platforms that people run applications on. Most most software companies have their own platform for running applications. Lots of oil companies develop their own in-house proprietary applications. Um, and managing all of the infrastructure around that is hard and con- complicated and boring and doesn't actually add any value to anyone. Um, so one, one of our, our favorite buzz phrases when we, we talk about software platforms in, in, in Dell EMC is undifferentiated heavy lifting. In other words, it's all that code you have that you really don't care about, but you have to have in place, whether it's a Segway reader is a classic example, right? How many of those have been, have been written and how many do you actually need? So a good example of... Um, uh, if you take um, Dave Hale's JTK, for example, that's a great example of a really robust, sound piece of code that anybody can take and consume uh, that, that takes away a whole bunch of heavy lifting that if you wrote it yourself, you wouldn't add any value. Uh, it, it, it wouldn't do anything for you. And so the idea about the Open Earth community is to say, actually, if we had one platform that did all of those undifferentiated things. And if we could get academia and the oil companies and other software companies to run on that platform, uh, then everybody's world would be a better place. Everybody could contribute to the one single platform um, and, uh, and we'd stop investing a bunch of time working on platform technologies and we could just focus all our attention uh, on the science front. Now, there's a cautionary tale here um, I'm pretty sure that both of you guys will be familiar with XKCD. Um, and if you took a moment to Google XKCD 927, that's 927, um, there's a brilliant one where uh, a bunch of guys are sat in a room and they say, it's ridiculous. We have 14 competing standards for this particular thing. We need one universal standard. Two years later, there are 15 competing standards. <laughs> and so... If, if the open earth community is going to be successful, it really has to avoid that creating yet another way uh, of solving the same problems. Now, uh, Landmark's approach to this is to say, okay, we're going to contribute um, our decision-based platform uh, and the OpenWorks data model uh, into an open community, and we're going to invite everybody to join for free. And so... Um, and they're still trying to figure out how you stop the kind of the, uh, the, the Russian hackers joining in or, or somebody from North Korea. But roughly speaking, the general premise is everybody can join and participate for free uh, and have access to the platform for uh, research and development. Uh, and the direction of the platform will be controlled by a community uh, executive, which is built up of representatives from oil companies, from other software companies. Um, and, and in fact, um, uh, somebody asked the question of whether or not Slumberjay would be welcome, and the answer from Landmark was absolutely. 
So this isn't this really isn't designed to be a kind of a, a club just for, for special people, but there are at least two, if not three, competing software vendors who are, who are looking to participate, as well as a bunch of different oil companies. And essentially the motivation is this, is that you know, it's killing us to either develop, support, implement, or test all of these different platforms. So if we can move on to one common platform, where, which is not controlled by one particular vendor, uh, where we, we don't have a situation where one vendor can suddenly say, oh yeah, we're not doing that anymore, sorry, you need to go and redevelop your applications. Uh, where there's, a, where there's a, a, a clear kind of um, uh, mandate or charter, I suppose is the, is, the, is the right word for the documentation, as to, as to how it's developed, how people can participate, and how people can consume it. Uh, then, then potentially the the world can be a better place, and we can focus more of our efforts uh, on developing um, uh, on developing software that actually does interesting stuff. Mm-hmm. And for me, what's really interesting about this is that we're at the nexus of um, companies looking really, really hard at their technical portfolios. And for me, I see every oil company looking at um, their portfolios from three different directions from saying, okay, some technology, I want to buy proprietary software. It has a clear value proposition. It's great. Some technology, I want to be open source. I'm really comfortable with open source now. Ten years ago, it was banned from my organization, but now I'm embracing it. So it used to be, if you go back five years, I would embrace you know, enterprise class, open sex source technology for providing infrastructure, Linux operating systems, um, databases, things like that. But now actually I'm seeing increasing use of, uh, of, of open source technology within um, petrotechnical workflows. And there are reasons that companies will support and embrace that. And then at the same time, companies are, uh, are revisiting the question of buy versus build. So for a long time, companies have said, look, you know, we tried writing our own software. It's really expensive. We didn't get very far. Um, we, we're just going to buy everything in from vendors. And what you realize is, of course, is that that doesn't give you a great road for differentiation. Mm-hmm. And what I see now is that companies are coming back. They're revisiting the, the assumption the buy versus build is the right idea. And they're saying, well, actually, we have particular areas of intellectual property which we want to instantiate in our own code that we want to own that's going to differentiate us uh, as an oil company. So when we're bidding for a license, we're going to have some better technology to apply to uh, exploring and reducing hydrocarbons. And so what I see is the you know we're, we're going to see increasing amounts of development happening inside oil companies. But they're going to be really focused on making sure that anybody who's writing lines of code in an oil company is writing value-added, differentiated IP, and they're not writing segway readers or seismic visualization tools or anything like that. So the ambition for the for the OEC is to become a, a common industry platform with a, a broad amount of support base that's uh, that, that's freely accessible to, to anyone who wants to, uh, to to participate in the development of it. Mm-hmm. How and when do we uh, participate? So. Um, the, the, the status today is that um, the, uh, the, the founding charter agreements are, are currently being reviewed by, there, there's, uh, I want to say, sort of 14 to 16 founding members that are you know, a combination of oil companies, ISVs and others, and they're going through the legal process of setting this all up uh, and determining how this is all going to work. There's a lot of work been done on the, you know, things like the web portals, uh, the development environments and things like that. 
Um, but there's some there's some legal work that has to be done to uh, to get this all set up uh, and working in a uh, in, in the way that it needs to. Now, what really astonished me, I was on a two-hour call last week uh, with all of the participants to review kind of you know legal feedback on this I don't know, 10, 12 page uh, document. Um, and I was expecting it to be a bit of a bun fight uh, because everybody has their own interests, right? right. You know, the oil companies coming in from one view, competing software companies have a different view. What really astonished me is how everybody on the call was collaborating to try and find a way of getting to a good outcome, mm. uh, which I think bodes well. And, and you know, nobody should underestimate that this is going to be a challenging thing to, to make successful. It's not going to be really easy. But in my view, the, the, the size of the prize is quite big, is that, you know, if we can, if we can get to a point where there's a, a, a single industry platform, um, the, 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 that's, that's freely available. And I'm, I'm, I'm not naive, right? I mean, there's, there, there are lots of companies for whom this is probably going to be uh, unattractive. There are some people who are going to see it as, uh, as a sort of an IP land grab um, and, and, and people for whom they'll go, Do you know what, it's interesting, but it's, but it's not for me or I'm concerned about, you know, uh, using a platform that, that has, you know, one vendors uh, has uh, has had a, a strong control of the direction of, but uh, but but even if even if in a, in, in a year's time we've gone from fourteen to thirteen different platforms, that 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 to me would seem like a bit of a result. And the and, and going back to the XKCD thing to wrap up, the one thing I'd say is that at least we're looking at the existing kind of fourteen and saying, well, let's try and take one of them, put it into an open community project. And make it more broadly available than saying no. We need to develop a whole new different one. Yeah, right, right. Yeah, I agree that that feels like a much more likely to succeed than. Yeah, I, you know, because you can look at things like Open Spirit, which kind of had that. Let's 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 get all these things talking to each other by building another thing, and I mean that's not really worked out. Yeah, and there's and, and, and Open Spirit had a had a couple of different cha challenges. One is it was set up to be a commercial entity, hmm. um, and and of course, as soon as you introduce kind of, you know, the idea of you know money and profits, then you have a whole bunch of different people who have an interest in it. Yeah, of course. Um, and um, and and of course, you know, o Open Spirit set out to, to solve a really hard problem of how to get everything to talk to everything. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and and it, you know it was built out of time on a set of technologies and platforms that you know there are there are use cases for open spirit that have been well proven and used and lots of companies use it to solve specific problems uh, but it, it it didn't work out to be the global panacea to all data exchange challenges that that, that were ever conceived and uh, so you alluded to some of the potential restrictions like uh, access for R&D, which I assume means something like non-commercial use. Um, and so are we talking about access to SDKs, like software development kits here, or are we talking about open source code? What Do you know, do you know what Landmark is really bringing into the, um, into the picture? So, um, so the, the, it, so the, the, the crux question, the really tricky one, is the 
um, is Landmark putting all of this code on GitHub and making it freely and openly available? There you go. And the answer to that, I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll phrase the question in the way where you, you might have done that makes it difficult. So the, the answer to that question is not now. Um, so whilst, and, and, and you know, I'm, I'm speaking on behalf of Landmark, so whilst what I'm offering is my opinions, um, you know, Landmark have every right to go, no, 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 he completely misunderstood. This is my understanding sure. of, uh, of, of, of their position. But, but essentially, my understanding is this, is that whilst in principle, Landmark are not averse at some point in the future to going down the open source route, they're concerned that it's not the right thing to do right now. Um, and they want to main, the, they, they want the community to maintain some control as to how the platforms developed. They want to avoid things like, you know, uh, code forks and, you know, somebody running off Monty Python style saying, no, this is the true open earth community. No, 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 no. I have the holy gourd of the open earth community. Mm -hmm. And so that that's a concern. And they want to uh, certainly initially uh, maintain a bit of discipline around how uh, the platform was developed and maintain it within, uh, within one community. Uh, now, in terms of uh, access access to the platform. Um, it will be um, the you'll have access to a development environment, which, as I understand it, will give you full access to the source code uh, of the uh, of the community platform, um, and there'll be a, uh, a clear process for how uh, development projects are uh, proposed, uh, how they're reviewed by the executive committee, and how they're. Um, uh, and how they've been executed, and and how there's agreement around specifications, around testing, and all these things. So there's actually a huge amount of work that's gone into thinking about uh, how realistically this might operate, um, and 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 it really does take into account the if I was a software vendor, how would I participate? If I was an oil company, how would I participate? If I was an academic, and I've got this fantastic new algorithm, how would I go about implementing that and and, and using that? Yeah. So. There's there's more detail to come out, uh, but the but, but the basic premise is is exactly that. Um, and in terms of the availability in the in, in, of how you'll use it in uh, commercial kind of productive use, um, it's still likely that there'll be some uh, charges for using the platform. So think of it a bit like kind of uh, Red Hat. Yeah, uh, it'll work on a model uh, a bit like that. Um, uh, or something like Pivotal Cloud Foundry, where you know open technology, but here's the commercial release with support and warranties and maintenance and uh, and, and and all those good things as well. Yeah, and right. and I think my view is I, I think uh, I think this might evolve over time. I think there are some questions around uh, how individual contributors might work with the platform, how academics might work with it, and there's an enthusiasm to kind of. Uh, definitely have those things on the radar, but in the short term, I think the you know the 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 real focus is on getting the whole thing up and running, getting people access to the code, and uh, and, and and having people start driving adoption of the platform. Yeah, right. Well, it's a fascinating move. Um, so, and I know um, most of the people on uh, Software Underground and many many subsurface scientists, especially ones who code, will be watching it with with interest to see how it unfolds. So. Um, thanks for giving us such a um, informed uh, and succinct and eloquent uh, summary of what what's going on there. Because um, yeah, I think it's uh, you know for me uh, the, the the industry 
needs to have some epiphanies, right? And it sounds like this is the beginning of uh, one of the epiphanies that I think it needs to have if it wants to get innovation and uh, invention up to the kind of levels that we're going to need to see to... Um, yeah, I, 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 I think you're right. You were at the EAG open source workshop, and so you saw that situation where we had, you know, presentation after presentation of people who'd mm -hmm. roughly written the same kind of thing Right. Uh, where there's an enormous amount of duplication and the collaboration between all of those initiatives mm -hmm. seem to be not strong. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think anything that we can do to make sure that the, the really super smart scientists we've got sitting in academia hacking away, we want them to do things that are unique, different, and are, uh, uh, and are contributing to the, uh, the, the greater good rather than just, oh boy, we're going to write another one of these. Yeah, right. <laughs> totally. Hope for the future. Um, David Holmes, thanks for coming on the show today. We really enjoyed your insights and, and just having a little chat with you. It's been great fun. Happy to come back anytime. Awesome. All right, guys. We will see you next week with episode 24 of Undersampled Radio. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.